In our recent sermon series, we stretched out the six days of Holy Week over the six weeks of Lent. So maybe it won't be unreasonable to now stay on Easter Sunday for a couple of weeks. Actually, in the liturgical calendar, the celebration of Easter extends over a seven-week period, while Lent is only six weeks, perhaps symbolizing that our resurrection joy will be greater than our penitent sorrow. Last Sunday, Aaron left us with a sense of the amazement and disorientation that Jesus' close followers felt when they heard the rumor of an empty tomb. Even though many of them made their way to the garden grave that day, they all seemed to have observed different things, and their responses varied too, ranging from deep uncertainty to joyous confidence differing perspectives depending on the place from which they were looking. Let's move ahead to the evening of that same day, that first Easter Sunday. In Luke's account, two of the confused disciples have seemingly given up and headed home from Jerusalem to the nearby village of Emmaus. You may be familiar with that story. A stranger joins them, and as they walk, he explains how the Hebrew scriptures made it clear that Messiah must suffer and die. They were fascinated, but it wasn't until they invited him to have dinner with them that they realized it was Jesus. They recognized him when he blessed and broke the bread. Then, maddeningly, he immediately disappeared. So the two disciples hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the others, and that's where we'll pick up the story. And they got up then and there and went back to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and the people with them gathered together. They were saying, The Lord really has been raised. He's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying this, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. They were terrified and alarmed and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you so disturbed? He said. Why do these questionings come up in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet. It really is me, myself. Touch me and see. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones like you can see I have. With these words, he showed them his hands and feet. While they were still in disbelief and amazement from sheer joy, he said to them, Have you got something here to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish, which he took and ate in front of them. Then he said to them, This is what I was talking about, talking to you about when I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Bible. 
This is what is written, he said, the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And in his name, repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be announced to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses for all this. Now look, I'm sending upon you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke says they were still in disbelief and amazement from sheer joy. Eugene Peterson translates it, they still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much. It seemed too good to be true. We tend to think that it is when we're depressed that it's hard to believe. But here the disciples found that great joy was also making it challenging to know what to think and what to believe. They clearly had heard the aphorism that if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. Part of the challenge for the disciples was the nature of Jesus' resurrection body. It was a real body and not just an apparition. As he points out, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. The body apparently had some sort of metabolism because Jesus is able to eat. That's all well and good, but this is also a body that can move through locked doors and seemingly appear and disappear at will. The Jesus they knew and loved didn't pull those kinds of stunts, and it didn't look like the Jesus they knew. Some of them would have been present a few weeks earlier when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. He came out a bit worse for the wear, but still very much looking like Lazarus. But what happened that Easter morning was far more than the resuscitation of a human body. It was the coming to life of a resurrection body. Paul tries to delineate the two types of bodies when he writes about the resurrection to his church in Corinth. He says the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes, from the first, what comes first is the natural body. Then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Since they are, in essence, encountering a new life form, the apostles can be forgiven for being confused and reluctant to believe. And so Jesus gives them evidence. Evidence that although he has a new body, he is still the one who suffered and died on the cross only a few days before. He shows them the wounds in his hands and feet. I wonder if that seemed as discordant to them as it does to me. I mean, really, Jesus had this miraculous new body, brimming with life and possibility. Surely some celestial plastic surgeon could have done a bit of work and removed those ugly scars. But then again, maybe I'm seeing it backwards. Maybe the problem isn't with the design of Jesus' heavenly body. Maybe the problem is with my view of wounds, my tendency to see them as ugly. Kintsugi, or golden joinery, is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. If a bowl is broken, 
Rather than discarding the pieces, the fragments are joined back together with a resin that has been mixed with flaked gold. There are no attempts to hide the damage. Instead, it's highlighted. The practice has come to represent the idea that beauty can be found in imperfection and that breakage is an opportunity. That is the sense that I get with the wounds of Jesus still visible in his resurrection body. Some of you, like me, may still love some of the old hymns we grew up with. And as I was pondering the mystery of Jesus' wounds, I thought of the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Here's the third verse. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends their burning eye at mysteries so bright. The visible wounds that mark the resurrection body of Jesus allow the disciples to identify him despite his altered appearance. The wounds confirm the bodily resurrection and are seen as evidence of Christ's victory. The principalities and powers the strongest of secular empires and all the spiritual forces of evil, had thrown their worst at Jesus, but he was alive again. What had looked like utter failure on that horrible Friday was actually a triumphant victory. But there's another way, perhaps an equally important way, in which the wounds help with identification. The marked hands and feet help the disciples identify the supernatural being as Jesus, but they also help the disciples identify with Jesus and help them believe that he could identify with them in their brokenness. As I was preparing this message, I was somewhat surprised to learn that God identifying with us in our woundedness and suffering has not always been the position of the church. For many centuries, there was a prevailing doctrine, at least in the Western Church, of the impassibility of God, that God cannot be impacted or altered by temporal events, and therefore could not suffer. God would, of course, have a theoretical, abstract knowledge of suffering and its impact, perhaps similar to the way an artificial intelligence chatbot would but God would not have an experiential knowledge of suffering. Augustine was an early champion of this view, and both Luther and Calvin subscribed to it. And maybe when everything is basically going okay, or at least the arc of history seems to be getting better and better, it wasn't a problem to have a God who sits in a remote spiritual realm untouched by our experience. But then the 20th century came along. And with its advances in technology and a dramatic expansion in our ability to inflict suffering on others. From the horrors of chemical warfare in the trenches of World War I, to the death camps of the Holocaust, to the killing fields of Cambodia, in the ghastly light of all that suffering, The language of divine impassibility became untenable for many theologians. One of them, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from the concentration camp where he was awaiting his execution at the hands of the Nazis. He said, only the suffering God can help. Only the suffering God can help. Human suffering may be the price for authentic being. It may be that suffering is inevitable in a creation where the creatures have free will. But God has not exempted God's self from the experience of suffering. On that first Easter Sunday, the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus, the same Jesus whose terrible suffering they had witnessed only a few days before, His wounds confirmed his identity and reassured them that he could understand their woundedness. That if suffering lay ahead for them, and some of Jesus' teachings had certainly suggested that it would, Jesus would be with them in solidarity. The letter to the Hebrews puts it this way, Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Solidarity really is a wonderful thing. When I have an illness, I want to talk to someone who has been through it, who knows what it feels like, who can tell me what to expect. It gives me great comfort. But I also want to talk to a doctor who can bring treatment and hopefully a cure. I want more than just a support group. And the wounds of Jesus do offer more. They bring not just comfort, but also healing. Luke's record of that Sunday describes Jesus doing a lot of teaching, both on the Emmaus Road and also in the house where the disciples were meeting. He records that Jesus began with Moses and with all the prophets and explained to them the things about himself throughout the whole Bible. He would certainly have taught from the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah writes, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus doesn't explain how his terrible suffering brings salvation for them. But he says it does. And they are to now get busy telling the world about it. The writers of the New Testament offer a number of pictures and metaphors to describe how the cross brings salvation. And 2,000 years later, theologians are still debating the question of how. But one thing they agree on is that it does. By his wounds, we are healed. I really like the metaphor of healing because what Jesus offers is a process, not a point-in-time fix. Some of you know that back in January, I lost the vision in my right eye. I promptly got a surgical repair that was done in under an hour. But the healing, the restoration of vision took 10 weeks. Jesus invites us to follow him, to journey with him, to walk in his way. And as we do, we will be healed. The unique reflection of the image of God that was created in us will be restored to its radiant beauty, even with our wounds. I mentioned earlier that when I first looked at this story, I found the notion of Jesus' resurrection body still having visible wounds to be a bit discordant. 
apparently I still haven't learned to see the beauty of wounds. I don't just mean physical wounds, but also wounds to my heart and my spirit, and I suspect I'm not alone. We've all known people who wear their wound like a kind of badge of honor. They're eager to tell the story of their pain. In a sense, their pain has become their story. They often aren't easy people to be around. At the other extreme, there are people who work really hard to hide and camouflage their wounds. They present a very polished persona, successful and in control. They aren't as messy as the ones who flaunt their wounds, They still aren't very approachable. After all, how could they understand my life? The wounds of Jesus invite us to find a middle path, a path between those two extremes, to bring our brokenness to Jesus so that he can heal it and to carry the wounds of our lives in an open hand so that we can bring healing to our deeply hurting world. The great Christian thinker and writer Henry Nouwen was deeply aware of his own woundedness. One of his most influential books describes the life of being a wounded healer. I want to close with his words. Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Jesus is God's wounded healer. Through his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy and life. His humiliation brought glory. His rejection brought a community of love. As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others.